0: Judge judgment. In third Nephi five to seven, Christ elevates the law of Moses by raising the expectation for human conduct. He moves from mere outward conduct into the inner soul of the man. One is not doing as he should if all he does is refrain from killing. Instead, he needs to remove anger. The prior obligation, i.e., said by them of old, focused only on one's conduct. Now the focus is one's motivation. One can judge another based on conduct. They either do or do not do something. The conduct is observable and therefore capable of being judged. Now, however, Christ moves the battleground inside a person. It is now in the heart. On such terrain as that, man is incapable of knowing and therefore of judging. With anything involving truth and rules of conduct, there are always some reasons to depart from the rule. Christ departed from this rule. First, however, it is necessary to know and understand the rule. The judgment which one is in danger of by being angry with one's brother is not the brother's anger, but God's. The judgment of God is provoked by those who are angry with their brother. One is not to be angry with his brother because that is the beginning of a whole sequence of events, the culmination of which may be killing. Anger leads to abuse. It leads to discourtesy, dishonesty, and cheating. It justifies miserable conduct because man thinks it right to give offense to another. It corrodes relationships and makes society sick. If this can be prevented in the heart, it can heal society. Almost refrain from letting offenses turn into anger, dealing with them inside the heart, showing forgiveness and compassion. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at Bountiful is not to equip man to judge others. It has no use for that. It is designed to change a person. You need to become something different, something higher, something more holy. That will require you to re-examine your heart your motivations, and your thoughts. It will require you to take offenses and deliberately lay them down without retaliation. When you do, you become someone who can live in peace with others. Living in peace with others is the rudimentary beginning of Zion. It will not culminate in a city set on the hilltop until there is a population worthy of dwelling in the high places and peace without poor among them. Christ's sermon is not merely a description of what kind of person he is. It is a description of what kind of person will qualify to live with him. The context of judge not, that ye be not judged, is framed by the statement that with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again, 3 Nephi 6, paragraph 2. We do judge one another, because we must. But the judgment should err on the side of forgiving. It should err in favor of trusting motives to be pure and intent to be good. All should be generous with their gratitude, evaluations, and suppositions. When they know someone is misbehaving, they should make allowances for those shortcomings, forgive them before they ask, and impute no retribution because of the offensive conduct. This does not make us better than another, it makes us whole. It allows the Lord to forgive us for our own, much greater offenses against Him. For when we are generous, we merit His divine generosity. It is how we are healed. It is the means for our own salvation. Instead of thinking ourselves better than an offender, we should look upon them with gratitude, for they provide the means to obtain salvation, provided we give them forgiveness from all their offenses. This is why we should rejoice and be exceedingly glad. They enable us to obtain salvation by despitefully using us as long as we measure them by the same standard that allows God to forgive us. What perfect symmetry you measure to others using an instrument that will be used by God to measure back to you. So your ready forgiveness is how God will treat you. All those grudges can be replaced with petitions to God to forgive those who abused you. As you lay aside all those sins against you, committed by others, it will purge from you all your own sins. Straight and narrow indeed, but oddly appropriate and altogether within your control. The defect in judging is the position from which one proceeds. Man is blind. He has too many subjective problems in his background, training, education, culture, presumptions, prejudices, things we just know to be true, ignorance, preoccupations, and impatience, all which interfere with perceptions. He acts on errors and reaches wrong conclusions. He measures with defective tools, then decides the matter from the wrong measure. Christ is reminding mankind that whenever he is inclined to correct another person, more often than not, he suffers from whatever defect he sees in others. That is why he noticed it. He sees it because it is really him. He is sensitive to the problem because he owns the problem. First, whenever we see something amiss in another, start with the realization that we are seeing ourselves. Start inside. Ask, why does this bother me? Am I really seeing myself in a mirror? Then be grateful you saw another person display your problem. You now know what is wrong with you. Forgive them, fix you. The tendency to withhold patience is more often than not because their moat excites your notice through your own beam. A moat is a speck, a bit of sawdust. A beam is a board yours is the greater defect for in you is not only the defect but the tendency to judge others harshly both are wrong when you have at last purged the defect struggled to overcome and conquer the temptation or tendency perhaps the price you pay to do so will make you humble enough to assist another not from the position as judge and condemner but from the position of one who can help When you see clearly, then you may be able to cast the moat out of thy brother's eye. For now you see him as your brother, and in a kindly and affectionate manner you may act to reclaim him, not as a judge, but as a brother. This is a continuing petition to make things better, but the only way you make them better is by starting inside. It is not for you to work on others, nor move outside your own range of defects, until you have first fixed what you lack. When you can proceed with charity to assist others to overcome what you have overcome yourself, then it is appropriate to approach your brother in kindness to help. Until then, stop judging and start removing beans from yourself. Justification The companionship of the Spirit that makes one justified by leading him to do what is right. Christ possesses the knowledge to be able to justify all men and women. Moses explained the interrelationship. For by the water you keep the commandment, by the Spirit you are justified, and by the blood you are sanctified. Genesis 4, paragraph 9 It is the Holy Spirit that will justify each person. key keys something used to open a lock something that is important or central in importance a keystone is the point in an arch that fits in the center holding the arch together upon it all else rests keys are better viewed as a signal or a signpost along a pathway Instead of I hold keys, and so I hold something of value, holding a key is better viewed as being given a strong guide or route to take. If the word is viewed using these meanings, it suggests that holding a key implies using it in action. The First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve used their key positions to manage and maintain the worldwide LDS Church organization. If not for that constant oversight, the organization of the church would lapse into disorganization. Their keys are indispensable to hold the entire structure together. Without them at the center, like a keystone, the building would collapse. Offices belonging to others are their responsibility. Each person receives keys that come to them in their own sphere. No one should be jealous of church positions. They do not matter and are not necessary. And this greater priesthood administers the gospel and holds the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God, TNC 82, paragraph 12. The word keys is horribly misunderstood. I have made it a practice to not use the word because of all the foolish and vain ideas that have accumulated around it. Joseph used the term in a variety of ways, for example, to mean authority or opportunity, and in others it refers to a correct idea. This is the most important meaning. The term in the context of priesthood is completely absent from the Book of Mormon, and that book is the keystone of our religion, containing the fullness of the gospel. The only time the word keys is referenced in the Book of Mormon, it refers to a physical set of keys to unlock a door to the treasury controlled by Laban, 1 Nephi 1, paragraph 18. Although Joseph used the term often and meant many things by it, the challenge is to understand priesthood without being distracted by a poorly defined and often used term. Mormon institutions now use the term most often to connote their exclusive right license or control the lds handbook of instructions states the following priesthood keys are the authority god has given to priesthood leaders to direct control and govern the use of his priesthood on earth this definition is the opposite of the way scripture directs priesthood be used ctnc 139 paragraphs 5 to 7 The LDS handbook approach turns the scripture upside down and backwards. By virtue of priesthood keys, they have the right to direct, control, and exercise influence over others. Mormon institutions in general all use their preferred meaning of the term keys to denounce anything or anyone they view as a rival. That is nonsense, and I avoid using the term because of widespread abusive practice. If a dispensation was given and the recipient failed to complete the work God assigned, then he acquires no key, no honor, no right, no authority from the Lord and therefore has nothing to account for. The notion that someone can obtain keys without receiving a dispensation from the Lord and successfully completing the work of God is a false idea that should be rejected. Keys are Knowledge A particular key is knowledge or instruction received from the Lord on how to do something. If one has the key, then one has the ability or power to do something. And conversely, if one is powerless to do or accomplish something, such as to bind and loose, to request ministering angels, to command the elements or spirits, etc., then they do not possess a key then knowledge through our lord and savior jesus christ is the grand key that unlocks the glories and mysteries of the kingdom of heaven the key that unlocks the heavens and puts in our possession the glories of the celestial world there are many things which belong to the powers of the priesthood and the keys thereof that have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world they are hid from the wise and prudent to be revealed in the last times now the great and grand secret of the whole matter, and the summum bonum, or highest good, of the whole subject that is lying before us, consists in obtaining the powers of the holy order of priesthood. For him to whom these keys are given there is no difficulty in obtaining a knowledge of facts in relation to the salvation of the children of men, both as well for the dead as for the living. TNC 151 paragraph 9 the melchizedek priesthood is the grand head and holds the highest authority which pertains to the holy order and the keys of the kingdom of god in all ages of the world to the latest posterity on the earth and is the channel through which all knowledge doctrine the plan of salvation and every important matter is revealed from heaven in knowledge there is power God has more power than all other beings because he has greater knowledge, and hence he knows how to subject all other beings to him. He has power over all. Joseph Smith also used the term keys to mean understanding, the greatest key being the ability to ask God and receive an answer. See TNC 147, paragraph 7 and section 141, paragraphs 32 and 33. keys of the kingdom to be able to ask and have god answer see tnc 141 paragraph 32 and compare to tnc 26 paragraph 20 section 82 paragraph 12 section 90 paragraph 1 section 131 paragraph 5 and section 151 paragraph 12 Joseph Smith used the term keys of the kingdom to mean when a person can ask and receive an answer each time he asks. Those directed by God hold the keys of the kingdom because the kingdom belongs to God and God must direct its affairs for it to be his. Without revelation to obtain God's answer, Mormonism is just as adrift in uncertainty as apostate Christianity. They are like Laman and Lemuel who could not understand a revelation given to their father. In response to Nephi's inquiry as to why they did not ask God, they responded, The Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. First Nephi 4, paragraph 2 It takes revelation to understand revelation. That key is to sacrifice your life by obedience to God. Man must live humbly and meekly before God obeying every word that proceeds from him they must do this despite the rage of false religionists who will always condemn the things of god by pretending they without revelation can know what god meant intended or is doing they are pretenders and are without authority they fight against god a man who has the keys must sacrifice all to know god Immediately following the two letters Joseph Smith wrote from Liberty Jail, he wrote the following in one of the only talks he ever wrote out. Thus we behold the keys of this priesthood, that is, the priesthood that belonged to Noah before the flood, the priesthood that warned him about the coming flood, and so on. It consisted in obtaining the voice of Jehovah, that he talked with him in a familiar and friendly manner, that he continued to him the keys, the covenants, the power, AND THE GLORY WITH WHICH HE BLESSED ADAM AT THE BEGINNING, AND THE OFFERING OF SACRIFICE WHICH ALSO SHALL BE CONTINUED AT THE LAST TIME. TNC 140, PARAGRAPH 16 THE KEYS OF THE PRIESTHOOD, THE PRIESTHOOD THAT NOAH HELD, THE FULLNESS OF THE PRIESTHOOD, THE HOLY ORDER, THE VERSION THAT CAME DOWN THEN, CONSISTS IN OBTAINING THE VOICE OF JEHOVAH, AND HE TALKED WITH HIM IN A FAMILIAR MANNER. Therefore it is given to abide in you the record of heaven, the comforter, the keys of the kingdom, the truth of all things, that which quickens all things, which makes alive all things, which knows all things, and has all power according to wisdom, mercy, truth, justice, and judgment. Genesis 4, paragraph 9 It's given to abide in man. It is the record of heaven, the keys of the kingdom, the ability to get the voice of Jehovah to tell one the truth of all things, the answers to what one needs. If there is a group of people who claim to hold all of the keys who will tell you plainly that the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us, like Laman and Lemuel, but unlike Nephi, who says, Have you asked God? He talks to me, then one can know for surety that those claimants do not have the keys. If God won't talk to them, they cannot have the keys. Kingdom of God The kingdom of God will always arrive as unwelcomed and unheralded as a thief in the night. See Revelation 6, paragraph 8, 2 Peter 1, paragraph 12, and 1 Thessalonians 1, paragraph 13. Whenever man can find out the will of God and find an administrator legally authorized from God, there is the kingdom of God. But where these are not, the kingdom of God is not. All the ordinances, systems, and administrations on the earth are of no use to the children of men unless they are ordained and authorized of God. For nothing will save a man but a legal administrator. For none others will be acknowledged either by God or angels. Where there is no kingdom of God, there is no salvation. What constitutes the kingdom of God? Where there is a prophet, a priest, or a righteous man unto whom God gives his oracles, there is the kingdom of God. And where the oracles of God are not, there the kingdom of God is not. These are words for all of mankind and are as relevant today as they were when Joseph first spoke them. Kingdoms The afterlife is divided. More than one state exists immediately following death and lasting until the resurrection. These states are spirit paradise and spirit prison. Following the resurrection from death, resurrected conditions are divided into progressively greater glory. The least condition of resurrected glory is called celestial glory and is compared to that of the stars. The next highest resurrected condition of glory is called terrestrial glory and is compared to that of the moon. The highest condition of resurrected glory is called celestial glory and is compared to that of the sun. Each person receives the condition of glory that most accurately reflects the intelligence, or light and truth, they acquired by their heed and diligence to God during their experiences in this world. While these states of resurrected glory are temporary, they last an unknown period of perhaps millions of years until another opportunity or cycle of creation is merited for the person involved. Another condition, one without any glory, is termed outer darkness, where there is no light or glory and where the worm, the symbolic agent of decay, dies not and the fire, the symbolic agent of purification, is not quenched. Outer darkness dissolves those who go there back into native spirit element, marking an end of all their potential. Outer darkness is not considered a kingdom but a condemnation because there is no glory there.